0: Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonnet Private Research Team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Welcome, dear listener, to the new normal and what an abnormal normal it's turning out to be. It is at once an age of miracles and an era of confounding absurdity. On the one hand, we have abundant jet fuel, cheap travel, and a peer-to-peer electronic payment system, known as Bitcoin, that is not so quietly eating into big banking's lunch. We also enjoy Amazon Prime's same-day delivery, watch stock markets ascend to dizzying records almost daily, and marvel at the 574-plus flavors of salad dressing over in aisle 3 at the local Whole Foods. And yet, in the year of our Lord 2021, we wonder just how much better off we really are. As we speak to you today, much of the Northern Hemisphere lies under a thick, suffocating blanket of snow. Millions of residents in Texas, America's energy capital, remain in the dark, as rolling blackouts in the Lone Star State mean no light, no heat, and no Zoom meetings for all those digital commuters. That's not to say people are necessarily free to roam at will, mind you, regardless of the planes, trains and electronic, self-driving automobiles at their disposal. Owing to various governments' draconian responses over the COVID-19 pandemic, whole countries are on full-scale lockdown where residents are not only forbidden to travel internationally but prohibited from leaving their own homes. Meanwhile, Thousands of National Guard troops remain deployed in America's capital city. And behind the scenes, the war drums beat louder by the day, urging a swift resumption of conflict over in the Middle East. And all this goes on as the bootlicking mainstream press run front page story after front page story on Jill Biden's scrunchie collection and Smokey Joe's affinity for log fires in the Oval Office. Yes, that's right, dear listener, there's nothing to see here. So go back to sleep, sheeple. As long as those funny-money stimmy checks keep flowing, big gov's got your back. Wondering just how long this whole charade might last, I recently caught up with Bonner denning letter co-author and frequent guest on this show, my good friend Mr. Dan Denning. Stick around for our full conversation as we talk about all this and plenty more up next. I think was it today or yesterday that Bitcoin crossed the $50,000 mark because surely that has to be when we're talking about money, talking about investments, financial markets, politics. This is just kind of the the, the low hanging fruit on all of those topics. And it's the elephant in the room to mix metaphors. So what, what do you make of uh, of 50K uh, Bitcoin and very broad brushstrokes? How do we get here and where to?
1: On the one hand, I, I am surprised. Because for you know the last eighteen months I've been reading a lot of what I thought were hyperbolic forecasts about where it was going and uh, and some of those included fifty, and then some were much higher you know, and I think we'll see a lot more of those now, 100,000, 500,000, whatever and it, you know as you see these charts every once in a while uh, which show uh, its trajectory as the number of Coin's mind uh, is exhausted, but uh, so well. I think on the one hand, within the Bitcoin world, and by that I mean the Bitcoin maximalists and the people who have really believed that this is uh, a fundamental shift in money and in digital assets, and also a flight out of fiat currencies. There's widespread belief that that this was always going to happen, and now that institutions are starting to adopt it, it's just you know it's this panic rush to own some before there's none left i think the other way to look at it which is the way i come at it from is it's a you couldn't pick a better sign of uh, speculation in financial markets and that's in relation to what's going on with money uh, and inflation so mm-hmm. in some ways it's uh it's the best signal that normal people are worried about inflation now I say normal people like Elon Musk and Michael Saylor and the people who are adding Bitcoin to corporate balance sheets that's not what you and I are doing that's not what, yeah so so I, I think we have to decide who we're talking about here but we also have to keep in mind a, th- a point you made in a private email exchange is that the market cap the size of the cryptocurrency market even with bitcoin's recent rise is still much much smaller than uh, traditional precious metals which which in some ways serve the same role um, or at least try to address the same problem. Mm-hmm. So th- there's room for it to get a lot bigger. But uh, to me, these are the sort of things that happen um, when markets are taken over by speculative frenzy. So um, it's interesting, but I, we'll, we'll see what happens from here.
0: Yeah, and I guess as far as headlines and... Uh, fantastic hyperbolic prognostications, as you were pointing to earlier. Um, it, you know, it's <clears throat> it's a lot more catchy or uh, sexier headline to note that Bitcoin is Bitcoin has gone up a hundred percent, where the same amount of liquidity rushing into the gold market would have maybe made you know whatever the number is a a five or or six percent rise or something like that. So. I think um, those wild prognostications can be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, where you start seeing numbers like 50k, 75k, 500k, and then that kind of fuels the whole uh, FOMO, you know, we, this fear of missing out for, for uh, retail investors that think, you know they, they think in terms of, "Oh wow, I missed out on the 100 percent gain, the 500 percent gain, where, you know, gold, rather, is much more of a kind of slow and steady wins the race, or slow and steady preserves capital over the long term. So they're, even though they, as you mentioned, they do serve kind of a similar role, I feel like when we're talking about these explosive numbers, they appeal to a different kind of mindset, speculator versus uh, investor. Is, is that a similar way to the way that you view it? or?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it because personally, uh, I don't own precious metals as a way to make money. I save in them as a way to preserve purchasing power. So it's an inherently defensive move. If I wanted to make money, I would speculate in mining stocks, which are leveraged to the, the price of gold and silver because they're producers, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're the ones who make the most money when the price goes up. So I think they're prior to this year, or really prior to the last few months, most of the people that I spoke to that bought Bitcoin weren't buying it because they expected to get rich they were buying it because they were trying to find a way to extract their money from the financial system in a, and and preserve value but that's not the case now clearly uh, for <laughs> the ethos is uh what is, what is it people say on twitter have fun being poor if you didn't buy it earlier so you know that's, that's yeah that's, that's let, let and, them let them eat gold <laughs> right and you know those things are cyclical in markets when when that when that buying is exhausted, and there's as has been the case with Bitcoin, when there's what been what three declines of more than eighty percent in the last ten years, that shakes out a lot of the loose hands. And so maybe in the long term the the argument that this is a sounder form or a harder form of money uh, will maybe that'll be true or, or it'll certainly be tested. But I think in the short term, uh, we're probably do for shaking out of some of the weak hands but mm-hmm. um but it, yeah it's been spectacular to watch there's no doubt about that and you can't watch it if you don't own it and think did i buy enough or should i right. buy more you know that and that's an interesting It's an interesting emotional position for people to be in because you feel you don't you feel stupid if you didn't buy enough or you feel like you didn't take enough risk or you wonder am i right about this so it it, uh, investing, despite what the Fed has done in the markets, investing is still hard right? <laughs> <laughs> because, of, because of our emotions.
0: Yeah. It's the, the road to, uh, to insanity is paved by frequent monitoring of the Bitcoin price and wondering whether or not you, you got in and how much and, and you know the, the, the path it could have been. But speaking of that uh, excess liquidity that is just kind of sloshing around looking for a place to go. Uh, obviously, Bitcoin is kind of the most conspicuous uh, bucket into which those uh, spigots are pouring all this, you know, all this freshly inked um, uh, fiat money, but um, are there any other places in the markets? I mean, you mentioned speculating on gold stocks and things like that. We talked a little bit about energy, but um, are there any other particular parts of the market that you think are potentially undervalued at the moment where you've kind of got on your, on your radar, on your monitor?
1: Um, not really, to be honest. You, you know, I, I think what we what we looked for last year when Bill and uh, Bill Bonner and Tom Dyson and I kind of looked at the markets and looked at the end of the year to revisit our asset allocation strategy is our view has always been that there would there would be a deflation in financial assets slash mean reverting crash, and that the huge increase in liquidity from both fiscal policy government deficits and monetary policy, low interest rates would eventually result in higher uh, prices for real goods and services. So you'd get inflation in food prices. Um, as demand increased, you'd probably get inflation in energy, which has underperformed for you know 10 years as a sector. But in general, that, that you'd start to see uh, this huge increase in liquidity affect consumer prices, even though the way consumer prices are measured often masks the actual increase in prices that people face on a day to day basis. So that's probably evident now if you look at the increase in food prices and of course with the blackouts in Texas. Um, which I know you used to live there, and my family's from there. So, and this is uh, um, entirely unusual to have a snowstorm and freezing yeah. temperatures in San Antonio, it's, Dallas, and Houston. It's, so it's, it's so about it's it's about as
0: unusual as sorry to uh, interrupt your flow, but it's 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 about unusual as having ice or sleet on the top of the Acropolis, which is what's happening on the other side of the planet right now. But yeah, so yeah, yeah. Texas, uh, Houstonians are not are not used to this.
1: Well, and and you know. Not a lot of people would know, and I, I didn't know a lot about it. Uh, I knew a little bit about it, but even though Texas is rich as an energy supplier in terms of oil and gas, and probably wind capacity for renewables, and you'd think with solar because of the sun that you'd get there, <laughs> their their electric grid, their power grid is uh, is cut off from the rest of the country for regulatory reasons. So it's not part. So that gives them some energy independence, but at a time like this where they weren't able to meet the surge in demand with local resources for a variety of reasons, then uh, that, you know, it exposed uh, the weakness of a self-contained energy market. And there's going to be all sorts of repercussions for that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting, in, in, in the context of what we talked about in the trade of the decade, that there would be an energy transition. I think it's another insight into the benefits and the drawbacks of centralization with mm-hmm. energy that you know oh, to deliver the kind of megawatts that cities of millions of people need, you have to have backup uh, uh, gas and um, coal plants, even if you're able to to meet a lot of your demand from renewables. So it's going to be an ongoing debate. They're going to throw a bunch of money at it. There's going to be lawsuits, and you know, to look quite seriously. There's a lot of human suffering. You know, we take mm-hmm. it for granted that if you flip the light switch on, or you turn the thermostat up, that you're you're gonna it's gonna work. And uh, it's just unfathomable to people that that in the 21st century America, millions of people would be freezing in the cold and dark in their homes. Uh, but that might be a separate discussion about <laughs> whether or not uh, mm-hmm. our our civilization is is uh, is in decline. But that's a yeah. Different- and- if it's
0: as special. robust as we thought it was, but okay. So then, you know, pivoting off that uh, <laughs> post-apocalyptic uh, picture that you've just painted us of millions of people freezing in the 21st <laughs> century in Dallas, um, talk us into um, you know something that you, we've discussed privately and you've touched on in a few uh, of your columns and commentaries, uh, and that is the loosely the idea of a kind of um, a, a giant reset button or a yarn null. Um, with regards to um, with regards to either U.S. or international monetary and fiscal policy, uh, you want to unpack that? Explain what you mean by Y A H R space N U L L.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I took that from Philip K. Dick's book, The Man in the High Castle, and it was actually an adaptation that Amazon made. Which went beyond his original story, and uh, the uh, premise was that when the in, in an alternative history where the Nazis actually occupy North America to to Denver, basically, so the 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 eastern two thirds of the country and the Japanese occupy the western third of the country, that the occupation isn't successful. Uh, there's resistance because there are still people who remember living in a world where you didn't have to justify why you were doing things or ask permission to do things so that they couldn't stamp out this spirit. So, they um, they just changed the calendar and said, well, it's not 1945 anymore, it's year zero. And they blew up the Statue of Liberty and melted down the Liberty Bell and turned it into a swastika and uh, destroyed Mount Rushmore. So, all the symbols that uh, that symbolized independence or the idea that the individual had rights in the state's was there to guarantee those rights not to not to give you permission to live the way you wanted to, so something has changed I think in the United States in the last year because of covid mm-hmm. and it's that mentality has changed where people out of fear or and some of that's genuine have decided to accept these uh, limitations on their liberty, but it's not possible without redefining what money is you don't get unlimited government without unlimited money and that means uh, trillion dollar deficits means not worrying about trying to balance the budget and it means uh, redefining what money is so it, we've seen more and more discussions about modern monetary theory where you spend money into existence we've seen what what is essentially universal basic income with these stimulus checks that come once a quarter, once a month, or the sort of permanent extension of unemployment benefits or the suspension uh, or, of forbearance payments uh, or forbearance of mortgage and rent payments. So these are, you know, they're not a tax on money, but, it, you know, if if money's not a reliable store of value anymore, if it's not a real thing, uh, then... Then money is no object, as I've said before, and um, at that point you get another kind of exponential growth, and it's not, you know, processing power on transistors or the rate at, at which the singularity is approaching. And um, it's uh, hyperinflation. It's the destruction of the unit of value that the government produces, which is the dollar, and that, to me, explains why you're seeing the huge move in Bitcoin. It also, for me, explains why the prices of firearms <laughs> are going up <laughs> dramatically, the prices of ammunition. And in the physical gold and silver market, as opposed to the paper market, uh, so the comics market where you see the prices quoted, you can't buy silver and gold for what the spot price says. You will pay a premium. You can still buy it but the physical price is at a premium to the paper price and that that is a reflection that we are in sort of year zero where people realize now oh this is only really going one way politically yeah. there's no will to rein in the spending so i'm going to elaborate on that in the in the next issue of the the newsletter next week
0: all right well we can we'll put that on the on the reading list, uh, to to your permission based uh, living, a phrase that you've used, and I think you probably coined from uh, when you got out of dodge at the beginning of COVID down in Australia. We had a little kind of working thesis you and I when we started these podcasts off, and that was that Australia was behaving a little like the um, the canary down the the COVID coal mine, and and we were looking at some of the things that were happening under a draconian. Government, particularly in the state of Victoria, as a kind of harbinger for things to come in the United States. And, you know, we've seen most recently um, these kind of snap lockdowns, which at just the 11th hour, the government just decides to call, hey, by the way, no one can do anything for the next X amount of time, five days, 12 days, uh, whatever it happens to be. Um, first, do you think that that? kind of um of authoritarianism is stands a chance in in a place like the united states where so much of this individual so so much of um what goes on politically is vested in the individual states um and you know you have a as you mentioned a heavily armed population a large proportion of which are probably not going to stand for those kind of orders and then secondly if if you do see that uh, happening on a broader scale outside of you know Victoria and Melbourne? Uh, w- what kind of long-term psychological um, impacts can we expect out of a society that is living you know one sneeze, one cough, one false positive away from just complete and utter suspension of civil liberties? That I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any kind of um, you know. Any, any future in a very real sense of the term, if the future can be turned off or suspended at any given point in time.
1: Yeah, well, it just proves that Alex Jones was right, <laughs> that, <laughs> that we live in a prison planet. But uh, I, think it, I think Australia and the US are interesting for a lot of reasons, but I would, uh, to, to, to keep it to data or facts rather than you know theories. If you have a large urbanized population, which you do in Australia, where, you know, the I think close to 60 or 70% of the total population of 25 million people lives in the eight capital cities. Um, that's, that's important. Uh, you know, it's an urbanized uh, country and uh, the GDP per capita is high. And what I mean by that is people have a lot to lose and they seem to be easier to um, control or persuade. When they live in densely populated cities, so you see in the United States, uh, uh, with the exception of Florida, that the lockdowns are have the seem to have the most political support in places like California and New York, where, uh, or Illinois, you know, Chicago, where, where, and that might be a function of centralization. That you know, that's the living arrangement that that uh, obtains. So if you have public transportation networks, you're requiring lots of food and fuel to get into these cities. Lots of trash and waste to get out, then it promotes a centralized response to uh, what is perceived as a problem, and people, in some sense, are are more in it together in these places because uh, they're densely p- populated, and and that's where it's most likely to spread the, the quickest if it's a highly infectious virus, as as COVID is. So, uh, but what happens, I think, is is the uh, there's a centralization of the narrative or of of what the correct response is. So, so that's happened in the United States. Instead of saying, well, let's let the states deal with it the way they wanna deal with it, or let's let the counties deal with it the way they wanna deal with it. There's been pressure mostly from the left uh, to centralize the response and say, this is the advice from the Centers for Disease Control. This is the advice from the World Health Organization. This is an executive order which institutes a national mask mandate. And that's, there's tension in the United States between the people who believe that we should respond to this the way we responded to the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. You know, this is a Manhattan project. This is a moon landing. This is where we all have to come together and get behind the government's response. And other people who naturally don't trust that or just say, no, that's not how federalism works. You don't get to tell us how we're going to do it, even if it's a public health emergency, because the, the feeling is that public health Any kind of emergency justifies a temporary suspension of liberties, but if the emergency is permanent, then the suspension is permanent. And that's why there's so much at stake right now for people, because they feel like this is being used as a Trojan horse to permanently alter our relationship with the state, and that most people are okay with that because they're scared to death of what's going on. So, uh, you know... I don't know how it'll uh, uh, end up playing out in the United States because it's a country of 330 million people, so it's just naturally harder for the government to exert control unless it's willing to forcibly turn into a police state. That has happened in Australia because mm-hmm. it's it's easier uh-huh. to arrest people, to find them, to intimidate them, and to get the you know it's a small media market, so there's very little opposition to the government's view. Uh, and I don't and I, I don't just mean the Victorian government I, I mean the, the federal government as well. and it turns out the state premiers are, are worse than the federal government in Australia. <laughs> um, so I don't know I, I, it's, it makes me wonder when it's going to be possible for either you or I to go back and if we go back and we're required to either quarantine or to take a test or to prove that we've been vaccinated, I'm not sure that I will. So it's, it's going to be an interesting year. Yeah, and just on that,
0: on that last point, I, you know, I have family and friends um, in Australia. Listeners may or may not be able to tell from my long diluted accent that I'm actually uh, hail from the land down under, but uh, speaking with some friends and family over there recently, I posed that very question to them. Said, look, hey, once you get, you know, if you're going to get vaccinated, once that happens, you go through your first and your second dose, you know, do you then get, you know, a stamp in your passport? Do you, are you then can you come and visit your granddaughter? Can you come and do, you know, travel freely as you, uh, you holidays that you'd already booked? Uh, and their response was, we've been told to wait and see uh, because, well, they don't know whether or not vaccines bind to individual uh, recipients. And so now the story that's kind of, you know, it's it's. Um, kind of being filled in through that very narrow media window in Australia is, well maybe if you even if you do go and get your vaccines maybe you'll have to come back some many months after that and prove that they've been effective so you'll have to go through another uh, another test and maybe that's just kind of kicking the goalposts uh, down the line but one thing that i did notice and i'm i'm not sure if there's if there's a kind of um, a parallel to this in the US because the market sizes are so different but one of the things that i did notice has happened in australia is that the size of the stimulus uh, economic stimulus uh, anti covid economic stimulus in australia per head of capita is among the highest in the world i think it's maybe 7th or 8th even though they have basically no covid to contend with uh, especially relative to someone like the uk or the us but nonetheless the government has spent you know basically everything in its firepower to, quote, unquote, combat this natural phenomenon um, in in all its omnipotence. Um, And since that liquidity, that money has nowhere to go, certainly not on overseas expensive vacations because it's essentially returned to its, uh, its convict island origins, local prices in markets like the housing market, which pretty much everyone in Australia is fascinated uh, and enthralled to uh, are going ballistic so i have just anecdotal you know um, evidence from various friends and and family who are saying that we've never seen anything like this where people you know one year ago were struggling to you know get price x for their house and then and they're now 12 months later knocking back 2x Even though there's been practically zero economic growth, there's record unemployment. Whole industries are grounded, uh, including a lot of the industries that Australia depends on. So this uh, is—I'm wondering if that's in your mind a peculiarly Australian phenomenon, or uh, if we get you know big kind of lockdowns in the UK and for uh, listeners there or in the US, is there some chance of that happening in uh, outside of Australia too?
1: Yeah, I think so to the to the extent that it's. It's people expressing a preference for real assets as opposed to financial ones. And maybe there's a slight difference between Australia and the United States in that regard that American middle-class investors tend to speculate in the stock market, whereas my experience in Australia over 10 years was Australians tend to speculate in the property market. And people will always say, oh, you know, it's different here, Uh, Australians. It's the it's the Australian dream. People want to own a home, and you got to get on the property ladder. It's it's the way to get rich, really. It's it's the it's the big um, brass ring for people to say that. that's that's the only time tested established way of getting wealthy in Australia. You don't do it in stock market. You don't do it through superannuation. But, you know, it reminds me of that phrase that uh, that people use jokingly that the American eater wins again when you see all these things about like the McRib (laughs) or these ridiculous high calorie fatty foods that continually set records. And you're like, how in the world does this culture find new ways to invent food that is just ridiculous? Uh, The Australian home investor wins again. It's the way, you know, for a long time, I felt like there's just no way this national obsession over getting rich in the property market is economically healthy. It's a massive overinvestment in residential real estate. And it's just inflation in house prices, which makes people feel wealthy because it's an asset. But you know, it's just to have your whole culture singularly focused on getting wealthy through trading houses rather than making things, producing things, can't in the long term be very healthy. But this is not the long term right now. This is the short term. And I think to the extent that the money is uh, contained within the economy, because people can't travel, it's not being spent on tourism, leisure, entertainment, hospitality, then uh, yeah, it's it's certainly understandable. Here in the US, it would be uh, more related to people moving from a high tax, high regulation lockdown states to Lower tax, lower regulation, non-lockdown states, which which you've seen, you've seen mm. population declines in New York, New Jersey, California, Illinois, and then Florida, with its governor uh, in Texas, despite the blackouts, and then other places without an income tax, like South Dakota, Wyoming, Washington State. Although that's problematic because because of uh, the Seattle and, and the government there, but. So, so in the U.S., it's a less nationalized property market; it's a localized phenomena. So, some some places, prices are off the charts, and other places they're falling. In Australia, it, it's it's just such a sm- much smaller country in terms of population that uh, it it's not surprising to see all that money pumping up house prices again. Mm.
0: <laughs> the Australian. Real estate home buyer wins again. I like that. So I, f- I feel like we're gonna have to. I feel like we're we're gonna have to do like a, a much longer um, podcast conversation uh, specifically on your uh, American bolt hole project. And I know you've been, you know, all over the fifty states uh, looking for you know the lowest tax, most independent, most liberty loving uh, area. That that you can so th- so that's probably a much longer uh, discussion. But if we get back to the general, just to kind of round it out here, um, you know, we're we're a couple of months into, or what I guess it's like almost a month uh, since the twenty uh, Jan twenty inauguration. So we're a month into um, into the Biden administration, and I don't feel like I'm going to be particularly surprised by. Um, the answer to this this question but uh how you know a, a, a one to ten how are we how are we ranking mr biden's uh performance so far i guess if you were going to do it on number of executive orders signed then um <laughs> then that would be one extreme but um where do you where do you place this one month in It's pretty early but
1: yeah it's more of the same really it's back to uh pre-trump rules in washington and by that i mean the uh the barrage of executive orders to reverse a lot of the Trump executive orders is the way the administrative state works. So you know he is the chief executive officer. Uh, so in some ways it shows how little power the president has because uh, it, it, you know he doesn't do these things. It's it's the arms of the executive branch that do them, but he he sets those in motion. Um, and there's been very little from Congress. You know they they had an impeachment trial, which failed. They've been sitting on this stimulus bill doing other things which are more important. There are still thousands of National Guard troops in Washington. You know, how bizarre is that, that a month after the election, the Capitol is still, uh, you know, quartered by, by troops from around the country. And there's been no coverage of that by the media. In fact, they're talking about how oh, Jill Biden wears a scrunchie when she goes shopping, which makes her relatable to middle-class American women, or how the Bidens have brought dogs back to the White House. <laughs> I've,
0: just, I've literally got my on my uh, notes here, uh, ask about dogs and logs. I, I kid uh, you not, I saw a, I saw a uh, CNN story the other day that said Biden likes to keep a fire going in the Oval Office and sometimes actually even adds a log himself. So this—I don't know if this is just a particularly slow, slow news day, or that is what passes for hard-hitting journalism right now. But you can have thousands of uh, national guards quartered outside, and we're—we're we're, you know,
1: we're leading with Biden's dogs and logs. I don't know what that it's is. It's a psychological operation yeah. to try to suggest that the country is back uh, to a normal routine, and that this is a fatherly, paternal, safe pair of hands. Whereas during the f- entire four years of the Trump administration, it was a psychological operation. To suggest that we were in a constant state of crisis because Russians had infiltrated both the administration and all levels of, of the Trump uh, organization, and we're you know we're destroying the country from the inside out. So the, the media, to me, is 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 equally uncredible now as it was a month ago. It's just it's just remarkable to see how quickly they flip flop. And I did see something interesting yesterday that said Kamala Harris is is now taking calls with foreign leaders. Uh, on behalf of of the president. So that's an interesting one because she was talking to Justin Trudeau and somebody else. So these are nominally American allies. Biden hasn't uh, talked to Benjamin Netanyahu yet. So there's some suggestion that there's a change in the US position on Israel, but it, it suggests to me that he's not in charge. You know, there was a laundry list of things that the left wanted to do, progressives wanted to do. And he just signed his name to those things. And uh, he's the instrument of a agenda which is now sees a huge opportunity to shift America uh, quite overtly to the left, and that's another thing I'm going to be writing about in next month's issue. Is that Yarnol or Year Zero was also something the French revolutionaries did and the Khmer Rouge did. So there was a systematic attempt to 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 reshuffle the culture, attack. Uh, existing institutions, uh, attack the language, attack the calendar, and try to really do a reset in the mind of people so that they got used to putting their faith in, in in government, in revolution, in secular institutions, or authorities. And that's that's happening right now in the U.S. It's been happening for a long time. It's just now seems to me to be more overt than it was before. Yeah,
0: mate, let's, let's absolutely put um, the corruption of language along with the corruption of money on, uh, on the list for uh, bigger, broader discussions in the very next uh, next episode, but I am cognizant of your time and I don't want to take up too much of the listeners' time, so uh, do tune in again next time. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, stay warm there in Colorado. Thanks, Joel. See you, man. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.